Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is my co-host and telepathic genius, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? Huh? Oh, Andy, I'm sorry. I, I was lost in thought remembering that time you and I were in the ocean. But no, 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 I'm good right now. I'm, I <laughs> oh, just good. do that five or six times this episode. I'm just going to remember <laughs> that moment where we were swimming in the ocean. Maybe I'll remember more each time. So today we're talking about the incredibly popular movie from 1975, Escape to Witch Mountain. But first we have a guest star to introduce. Yes, our guest star is Nancy McCabe. Nancy is the author of six books, most recently Can This Marriage Be Saved, a memoir, which explores the story of her ill-advised, ill-fated, youthful marriage through hermit crab essays and extended metaphors. Her books also include From Little Houses to Little Women, Revisiting a Literary Childhood, and the novel Following Disasters. Her short pieces have appeared in numerous publications, most recently Salon, Entropy, and Essay Daily, in addition to Prairie Schooner. Gulf Coast, Massachusetts Review, Newsweek, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Her work has received a push cart and made notable listings eight times in Best American Essays and Best American Non-Required Reading. She directs the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh at Bradford and teaches in the Spalding Low Residency MFA program and online for the Creative Nonfiction Foundation. How are you doing, Nancy? Good, and I'm so excited to be here. I love this podcast. Oh, yay! We love it when people love our podcast. We're so glad to have you here. Yes, yes, it's great to have you. So Nancy, you're the one who picked Escape to Witch Mountain. Uh, why did Why did you choose this movie? So this movie changed my life when I was 12 years old. On the first day of seventh grade, I, I made a new friend, Marisa, who also loved the movie. And we subsequently discovered that we had astounding ESP powers and a Ouija board informed us that we were long lost sisters from the planet Leshma. And so now all these years later, Marisa and I both feel that Witch Mountain launched what we consider to be the last real year of our childhoods when we can still allow our imaginations to run wild. Oh, that is a great story. That is a great story. Well, some key facts to sort of set the stage for this movie. The film's adapted from Alexander Keyes' sci-fi novel, same title, Escape to Witch Mountain. So there's a British director, John Huff, who's directed a horror film called The Legend of Hell House, as well as a television series called The Protectors, while he's seeking his shot to direct for Disney. It just moved to Hollywood, and he was really, really chomping at the bit to uh, direct for them. So he direct he gets his chance with with Escape to Witch Mountain. He goes on to direct both the sequel, Return from Witch Mountain, also directs The Watcher in the Woods, which I think we're going to probably take a crack at a little later this season. And yes, then highly also, requested for some reason. Yeah, and then the made for TV Black Arrow for Disney, which is one honestly I have not seen yet. So that's something that was another on my list of got to find this. Disney does a lot with this franchise of Witch Mountain. There's a sequel in 1978. Of course, there's Return from Witch Mountain. There's Beyond Witch Mountain in 1982. There's a remake of the original in 1995. And another sort of remake in 2009. That one's Race to Witch Mountain, yes. Yes, yes. But in 2002, Ike Eisenman, who plays Tony in the film, directs this great comedy mockumentary short called The Blair Witch Mountain Project. So if you're a fan of Escape to Witch Mountain, you're going to want to see this, and it's available on YouTube right now. 
So let's get started talking about the plot. And as always, when we talk about the plot, we talk about the Manish Tana, the point of attack. And we ask, why does this movie begin where it begins? We have an opening credit sequence which really plays heavy into the idea that they are going to be chased by dogs. We, we open on, on that image a lot in the credits, but the movie doesn't really begin until a little bit later when Tony and Tia are arriving uh, by, by bus uh, at, the, at the center uh, after having just lost their foster parents. And that's really where we pick up. And so my question for Andy and, and Nancy is, why is this the place where we begin the movie? And are there other places that you might think about starting the movie? So I think it's because having lost their, you know, they refer to as both their foster or their adoptive parents, which is sort of odd, but, but having lost them recently, they're in this newly vulnerable position. It's a chance for a new beginning. Um, we find out later that the villagers where they used to live thought that they were really weird and they were unable to maintain friendships because of their powers. So it's like, this is a, a chance for a new start. And, and Tia kind of expresses worries about fitting in and belonging, but then that whole thing is just dropped, so I'm not sure if that really is. I'm not sure what to think of that. The other thing about that, Nancy, is that Tia has the star case, right? And it's noticed by the orphanage director. Like, in, I mean, very early on, maybe within the first minute of the movie. And there's some weirdness there. Like, you're like, there's something not quite right about these kids, but we're not quite sure what that is especially when they start interfacing with Truck, the other little boy who's kind of a bully. And and you 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 get the sense that they have this ability to sort of fight for what they need, but that they're also very very different. I was with you too. Like I guess in the 70s I did a little digging on this. I guess in the 70s people did call adopted parents foster parents and those two terms were sort of used interchangeably sometimes. So that brings some confusion to a more modern viewer, but I think it was kind of common in that period. The exposition is all of the background information we get about the characters, and the inciting incident is the thing that really launches your movie. It's up until then we've been seeing a day in the life of these characters, but but when you're saying the movie really begins, when it starts to get some heat, when the conflict really the conflicts begin to emerge and we're on our journey, that event is the inciting incident. But one of the things that's really interesting about the Manish to, not, to me is, number one, both their foster parents just died. Both of them. Which implies a tragedy to me. Uh, an unexpected tragedy that took both of their foster parents at the same time. And Tony and Tia, while they say, we loved our foster parents very much, my goodness, are they not showing any of the feelings that you might you might think... Uh, ch ch children were would ex who have experienced that kind of trauma would be experiencing. It almost feels like an afterthought. Right. Well, I mean, it it raised a question for me, which I don't think the movie wants wants me to be asking, which is we've got these two almost om omnipotent children, and they've both mysteriously lost their foster parents in an accident, when we'll also see they have precognitive abilities and are capable of averting tragedies. <laughs> I start to put two and two together, and maybe I'm getting nine here. But I wonder if it would be a better start, instead of ha having them come back in this sort of, we were loved, but now we're being returned, that they are being brought back by their foster parents who are like, nope, these kids are too weird for us. 
find another huckleberry. Like it's a failed adoption. Yes. Right, right. That could be more interesting, I think. I, But I, it, it feels to me like the script was like, okay, the kids are going to the orphanage. And then somebody was like, wait a minute, where have they been? If they don't remember things, okay, we got to come up with something. Tell you what, how about their how about their foster mother dies? What about their foster brother? He's dead too. <laughs> you know? I mean, it just it feels really kind of like afterthoughtish and not well not not well thought out. Now I haven't read the book, so maybe the book starts that way and maybe I did read the beginning of the book and they just lost one foster parent. They only had one to begin with. So it wasn't a family. Well, I mean, and that, and, you know, that's fine also, but it does bring them in with a, which you would expect to be a certain amount of emotional baggage and grief, and they come in with none of it. And so one could argue that whatever happened to the foster parent, arguably, could be the inciting incident even before we started the movie, because we're never seeing their lives as the way they normally were. We're immediately seeing them thrust into a new, unfamiliar situation where they don't know anybody, where they need to make friends. And so when I say, where is the inciting incident? Part of me wants to say the inciting incident happened before the movie started, but it did not. It cannot. That cannot be the answer. And there are several other places along the way which we could argue might be the inciting incident too. Do you guys have any, there's no wrong answer here because I don't think there's a right answer, but do you guys have any things that you might point to on this, on this movie and you're like, ah, here's where the movie really starts to cook. This is the inciting incident. I was struggling with this question because there's so many little moments that I thought were really important. The moment that truck snatches the star case and that causes it to break and then the map is revealed. When Tia has her first vision, I assume it's her very first one. She's like having these recovered memories when they keep hearing the dogs that are even miles away and when Tia has the premonition about Mr. Duranian, like all of those seem like really important launching moments. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could point to any of those like, okay, the star case has given them a clue. That's an inciting incident. I could say, Oh, you know, she's just saved the life of uh, Duranian and therefore he's now interested in her. That's an inciting incident. I could point to the adoption of the of the two kids by Mr. Duranian uh, and their arrival at the mansion as an inciting incident in sort of um, an Annie kind of way. And we've got evil daddy Warbucks, but uh, I mean, but as an inciting incident goes, I mean, that that would work. I could even argue that it isn't until they start the actual escape, the run, the decision to run away to which mountain. I don't think that's right. That's late. That's a little later in the movie than I'd like it to be. But if if a student on a test wrote, that's the inciting incident when they make the decision they need to escape. I don't think that's entirely wrong. It isn't neat here. We we never really, and and I think one of the things that we're going to talk about is we never really settle into what kind of movie this is. Yes? I think usually with the inciting incident, at least for me, there's some sort of drama around it and it's not you know there's usually some sort of conflict or something really shocking happens to kind of you know subvert the status quo the kids at the orphanage seem to sort of be settling in they've kind of overcome truck they've overcome they're using their powers 
sort of for good and maybe talking about how we can use those and tamp those down a little bit, but we're not really sure. The best thing I'm coming up with is that on the field trip to see the movie at the theater, Tia saves Duranian. There's this tow truck that smashes into a car. It's very, you know, wow. And then it's, I've got to find those kids and make them mine. And we're like, okay, that's interesting. Why would he feel that way? And then, of course, we go to the Bolt house and we meet we meet Bolt and, and, and everybody else. But it seems like that's the best because there's there's just the most drama surrounding it. You know, the rest of it feels like exposition to me, even the star case. Like, what's this? We don't know. Yeah. And, and so I'm not really left in a satisfied place for this part of it. Maybe we'll do a little better with the rising action and the climax. So the rising action are all of the events leading up to the climax. I think we would all agree that by the time they've decided to make a break from Xanthus, that they're on they're on the rising action. They meet Jason O'Day, that's rising action. And as we're continuing along our journey, we're headed towards the climax, which is the point in the movie where things are at their most tense where the potential for things to go wrong is at its highest. I sometimes say, and I, I think maybe fairly in this movie, this is where the forces of good fight the forces of evil once and for all, where the movie might not turn out to be well. Where would you guys say the climax of the movie is? So I'm voting for the the long car chase, which is really long. And when, that moment that they come up on the roadblock and you think, oh, it's all over. But then suddenly the Winnebago is levitating, it's flying. And I think that that's the moment that you're just like, okay, like everything's going to be fine. Yeah, agree. Yeah, I think so too. I, th- I think it, it, is, it does have a clear climax. It is this big chase scene. The only problem with the climax that I, I, can, I can see here is there is no tension in it because we know the forces have good have planned this climax. Tia and, and Tony get a telepathic voice inside their head saying, make sure that we have a ch- car chase scene in this movie. We want, we don't want you to just get away yet. I mean, I mean, basically, I mean, that's what the voice says, right? Like, we need them to follow you enough so that when we do the climax, they are utterly defeated. Everything's going according to plan and ne- nothing on the car chase ever doesn't go according to plan in the climax. It feels weak. It feels like a weak climax. I'm not particularly worried for them. It, it's a total deus ex machina. You know, it's like we, up till now, they've kind of had to figure out clever ways to solve their problems, but all of a sudden they're in the hands of a more powerful magic than even they possess. And like, yeah, they didn't have to do anything for that. All right. And then, and then after the climax, we get to a very brief falling action. Uh, falling action is the kids ask Jason to take care of Winky the cat. They meet Uncle Benet, who explains everything that maybe we don't understand already. They get into back into the spaceship and they fly away. And movie ends, right? We don't get to see where they go, but we do get to see them go. All right, so that's the plot. Andy, you want to take us into tone? Yeah, I think with this movie, I loved this movie as a kid, and I'm really struggling with it as an adult. And I don't know if it's because there's, you know, it's been, you know, 45 years since I've seen it or what. But there's a there's a tone with this movie. And I think the tone shifts a lot. And I wanted to talk a little bit. I don't think we've ever done that on this podcast. 
what would you all say the tone of this movie is? Is it constant? And is it a constant tone? Oh, I think it's definitely an inconsistent tone. It does feel to me like there are at least two different movies happening here simultaneously. And I liked the first one more than I liked the second one. I think I like where we start more than where we finish. There's, for me, the the tone of the first movie where I'm happiest is when Tony pulls out the harmonica and makes all of the marionettes and puppets in the toy house dance with Tia, and they're all playing around. At that point in the movie, we are firmly ensconced in, this is a kid's movie, where kids, the kids have powers, silly things are going to happen, but this is a comedy, we're going to have a good time. It promises a level of safety and just plain fun wish fulfillment. Whimsy. It promises whimsy early on, and I'm there for that. I'm there for all of that. Sure, sure. But then, once they escape the house, I don't know what this movie is anymore. It it It's like a travelogue. We're going down Highway 1 in California, and we're, we're seeing the coast a lot. A lot of chasing... A lot of chasing, a lot of sitting around, eating, (laughs) a lot of that. A lot of looking out the window and remembering flashbacks of the ocean. But, I mean, but but tonally, now we're in, it's an adventure, and it's it's almost more of an an adult-themed adventure at, at, at that point. The whimsy is gone, the fun is gone, it's... It's just, we're racing down Highway 1. Except that nobody is ever really in danger. Like, we're always reassured every single time. Like, when the cop is standing there and and his motorcycle goes, it, it bounces on the rocks and goes into the ocean, he's fine. Or the moment that a car crashes, they take a moment to give us a little scene of the people being rescued. Or, you know, that happens over and over again. We get this reassurance that nobody's really hurt. So it it still has that children's movie sensibility to it because it keeps reassuring us right yeah there's a part of me that wonders if you took out the first half of the movie and you started the movie on jason he's a truck driver who doesn't bond with anybody right and along the way he finds these two kids have stowed away and we learn with jason at the same time that these kids are not who they appear to be that they actually have powers that they're actually aliens, right? There's a part of me that wonders if if that was our movie, I would feel better about the second half of the movie. You just took my pitch, Larry. <laughs> did I? Yes, you did. <laughs> we never share each with each other what the pitch is going to be, but Larry just shared my pitch. <laughs> that was my plan all along. Now oh, my pitch. I told you you now were telepathic. I told you you were a telepathic genius, and here we yep. are. <laughs> yep. But... Okay, Andy, so you thought about this then. What what do you think? So the Apple Dumpling Gang also releases in 1975. And the movie has some Apple Dumpling kind of moments. You know, I mean, it's clearly not a comedy, but it definitely has this kind of Poppins, Herbie the Love Bug quality about these special effects. So they don't seem super spooky, but they're definitely otherworldly and they're powerful enough to thwart, you know, some greedy capitalists, right? And so we have, but we, at the same time during this period, we also have TV shows like The Rockford Files 
or Columbo or Hawaii Five-0 or Starsky and Hutch. And they all kind of have these kind of moments where everybody's in the car and kind of sitting there and how are we going to thwart this cop or how are we going to do that? And they have this sort of, you know, we were watching this as a family and I'm like, oh, this feels like the Rockford Files now. Okay, no, this feels like the kids are now, this is more about Jason than it is about the kids. And so the tone changes from this whimsical thing to now we've got a man who has to heal himself. So I think we've switched and we can talk about that in a little bit, but we sort of switch protagonists and the tone changes because it's not, because Jason doesn't have any whimsical powers. No. You know? No. He just has the ability to drive. He can drive. <laughs> he can drive and he can buy tuna and milk and that is what he contributes. And he buys, he buys a what lot. What an action hero. And he buys a lot more milk than he should, apparently. So that's his problem, yes, right? He he doesn't even <laughs> buy the milk correctly. There is no way they will drink all of that milk. It's going to be a waste. The milk looks like orange juice. I'm not sure what he was buying. Those <laughs> those are orange juice boxes. That, I'm, I'm suspicious of that milk. <laughs> but the special effects really, you're right, with the marionettes or the talking to the horse or getting the dogs to turn around and chase the bad men, right? I mean, those are very kind of, what we expect or what I expect when I watch a Disney film, right? That tone, that kind of whimsical tone and it's fun and interesting and, or, or, you know, the, here's the crayon that's drawing on the mirror. I mean, all of these things, this is like, this is movie magic and I'm here for it. Right. I got nervous when they were in the scene with the bear. Did you guys get nervous when they were in the scene with the, with the kid? I'm like, Ooh, the kids and the bear are really close to each other on camera. <laughs> Was there a union rep on standby here? Because I, I, I was so scared. I was so, I mean, intellectually, I know we're not going to watch two small children who are the heroes of our story get mauled by a bear in a, in a Disney movie. But, but the, I mean, the effect certainly, like, I believed it. Sure. So should we t start talking about the characters? Let's do, let's dig into, let's start with Tia. So, you know, one thing that really struck me about the kids is the way their special powers are very gender stereotyped, the way Tony's are about action and creation and Tia's are about telepathy, communication, nurturing, but she's the one, I guess the reason I always thought she was the center of the movie when I was young is that, you know, she's the one that has the premonitions, <clears throat> she's the one that has the visions, she's the one that expresses emotions. She has those moments where she says to Tony, you know, I'm afraid, or, you know, we see these moments where she bites her lips. She looks a little teary eyed. She looks more vulnerable. Sometimes she says things in a tone that might sound whiny or pouty, but she's got that wonderful husky voice that sort of um, counteracts that. But, you know, I, I think with her, like, even though she is like this, she can talk to animals, she can communicate with animals, um, you know, with the horse, with the bear, with the cats, with the, with the cat, with the dogs. She's also the one with the star case. So, so she seems very central. I thought it was really interesting, though, how much she loves freaking out people and terrifying them. I mean, she's always like <laughs> laughing. You always see these so shots of yes. her giggling and sort of twinkling her fingers at everybody. And, and there's that one moment that I think I first glimpsed it when they were going in the gate and they ran into the guard and he's allergic to cats. She thinks that's hysterical. 
And and I don't remember thinking much about it when I was a kid, but now as a parent of a child with asthma, I'm like, well, that's mean. <laughs> so it was very interesting to to see like this little what what seemed like a little bit of a mean streak, even though she's always smiling and cheerful in those moments. And yet, and yet, she's often the wet blanket on the two of them, right? Like like Tony, I I think has more of like a positive energy to him. Uh, and I don't mean that in like that he's a better person. I, I I certainly don't mean that. But I mean just like like a little happier wherever he is. Uh, a little a little more likely to have fun. Where she's always like, but you know this isn't our real purpose. You know this isn't our real place. You know we shouldn't be here. You know this isn't right. You know this is wrong. Like she she she's kind of a killjoy. Like they're in that kid's house and with it like that beautiful playroom. And Tony is thrilled to be in that playroom. And at first she is too. But very quickly she goes, this playroom is wrong. We're having too much fun here. And <laughs> something's really wrong. Yeah, exactly. Tony's like, look, we just hit the jackpot. What are you talking about? Well, and she also has that line where she says, right before they escape, she says that her problem is that they've gotten everything they want and there's nothing left to wish for. And I thought that was the weirdest line because they haven't gotten love or belonging. They've gotten a bunch of material things. And, it, and uh, boy, that playroom is really cool. But, but I was like, what? Wait, what, what was that? Right. Right. The, the impetus to leave is things have gotten too cushy for them. Like, <laughs> the, 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 they're like, we're, we're too happy here. We need to go. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, maybe, but maybe it's also that they're looking at Bolt and going, well, he wants to use us as a way to get more oil. Like, <laughs> you know where the oil is under the ground, right? <laughs> okay, bye. Okay, not enough ice cream in the world for this, right? Tony's lost or forgotten some of his powers, right? And he says that to Tia, but Tia can talk. I mean, I thought that was pretty clever. So Tia can talk to him telepathically telepathically right but he has to talk out loud um and he has to use a harmonica and so the things that he does like enable other people to see what's going on because if they were both talking telepathically then you know <laughs> that would be a little rough to catch on camera right no but i i do think they were made along gender lines that oh that for Tony, sure 100 tony's got the more active powers and tia has the uh empathic powers the the intuitive powers right right he's playing Definitely. baseball she's protecting somebody from getting hit by a truck he can do the super jumps he can he can lift things with his music he can mm -hmm. like you know like if you were going to pick between those powers tony's powers are way more fun tia's powers may be more powerful but tony's powers are more fun i think tony he just joy in his powers he sees no reasons to hide them Especially when somebody torments him, he's just like, yeah, whatever. And he does, he, he uses them when he is more <laughs> cautious about that. So let's talk about Geranian. And he's a really interesting character to me. But for, and I'll talk about him a little more in my pitch later. But he's sort of a toady for this Aristotle Bolt. And I had this wonder... I had this wonder when I saw him because T is drawn to older men. There are only men in this. There's Jason O'Day's a man, Aristotle Bolt's a man, Duranian's a man, Uncle Bonet's a man, and they're all old white men, right? <laughs> so I wonder if she's drawn to older men because of her first relationship with Uncle Bonet. Like she's trying to recover that somehow. That was a wonder I had. 
I'm going to throw out that if you told me that we were going to find out that Duranian was actually a robot, that he was an aliens type synth like Ash from Alien, yes, right? 100%. I would totally believe it. He's got this look, look, it's uh, Donald Pleasance, I believe, and he's uh he's he's a fabulous actor, but the the it's so much is internal life and it all comes out so calm, so measured, so unflappable that I spent the first half of this movie thinking what must happen is that Duranian is going to learn to care about Tony and Tia and he's going to break his relationship with his employer because something is going to be awakened inside him. Am I stealing your pitch again, Andy? <laughs> You're completely stealing my pitch. But please, go on. <laughs> but 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 that that it, I kept thinking he was going to have the role which ultimately Jason does, which he's when, when the time like he's going to hear from from Aristotle, like we're going to dissect these children and see what how their brains do it, and that's going to be too much for him. He was going to be the one to tell the kids they needed to escape. He was going to facilitate it. He was going to go on a whole journey and come out a changed man. And nope, none of that. He really is Smithers from he from is. The Simpsons. <laughs> sure, They're, like for all the inner life that the actor is giving the character. There really isn't anything special about Mr. Duranian. He's just one of a million yes. He's a more successful, more competent yes men than the other yes men in Aristotle Bolt's life. Yeah. But he himself, the performance that is being given is an interesting performance of a character who is not particularly interesting. I'm glad to hear you say that because I just was so confused. I was like, I, I could not figure out Duranian. And what his function was exactly and who he, I mean, his personality, his motives. I, I was really puzzled by him. It seems like he's more conduit than actual character. And if he's the first person that the kids meet, we kind of want him to be the one that they go out with, right? Like if you're like, you know, it's, you just want that. You want that kind of closure. And I don't think they ever get that with him. So when we, t when we talk about characters having precognitive visions, I usually think about precognition as there is a divine source that is giving you information in advance because you need that information. And the fact that Tia saves the life of Duranian implied to me that there was a purpose in saving that life beyond just benevolence, that this person would be important to you, that, that by saving him, by saving this other person, you are in some way saving yourself. And nope, <laughs> nope, Tia should have let him die. <laughs> and there doesn't seem to be any sort of gratitude on his pet behalf either, because he's, he's willing to exploit kids who just saved his life. That seems strange, right? Why is he willing to do that? Well, I'm, I, and it works if he actually thinks he's doing them a good turn by bringing them to this mansion, R right? True, true. I like, like, hey, look. You have your own ice cream parlor. Hey, look, look at this. I mean, this is better than living in the orphanage. So so he could could be a decent person who actually thinks he's bringing them to Daddy Warbucks to be adopted. And then things could take a more sinister turn. It could be what he didn't sign up for. And and but no, no, it's just not the most interesting thing to you have this great actor. You could do more with him.
That's that's my feeling on it. Right, right, right. Okay, are we ready to move on to Aristotle Bolt? Aristotle Bolt. What is his plan for the kids? Why why are we concerned that he he is interested in them because of their abilities? What what bad thing is he up to? It is all so vague, and I'm really dying to hear your theory on this, but I love the way he just says these really ominous things that are meaningless, like he'll say, well, what was it? Wealth like flesh has to be nurtured and coddled, or I'm a vengeful man who doesn't make idle threats. But I was never clear what he wanted to do with the kids, like Andy said, like he wants them to find oil? Like, what? I don't think he does. I don't think he wants them to find oil, (laughs) because he's a gazillionaire. (laughs) Like, Mm. he's... He's Citizen Kane. He's living in Xanthus instead of Xanadu, but but uh, he's got so much money. He is Citizen Kane. Oh my goodness! Yes, he absolutely he is. is. Yes, I mean, there he, it is. There it is. No, I mean he's he's stealing from childhood, right? Yeah. To, to make. Yep. But but I don't think that's the interesting thing. The thing that Tia says, and this is my theory. Tia says he wants to learn how to do the things we can do. But Tony, we can't teach him that. We don't even know how we do that. Now, I don't know how Tia knows that, but Tia knows a lot of stuff I don't know how she knows. So (laughs) fine. But if, in fact, she cannot teach him the things he wants to learn, what is the threat? She can't do it. She can't teach it to him. And it would make sense to me. Look, you've got this older guy. Who, who has everything and has nothing at the same time. And like, so you could say, what, what is his ultimate decision? His decision is, well, I, I don't want to die. Uh, these kids have powers. Maybe if I learn their powers, I can trick, move my body into another body. They seem psychic. Like he, like, let's articulate this a little bit. He wants to be rich forever. He wants to live forever. He wants every, he, something. But it's just so vague that, that there isn't even a moment where Tony and Tia gasp at each other. where like, oh my gosh, he plans to use our powers for this evil thing. He wants to conquer the world. It's nothing. Right. Right. Weird. <laughs> so it's, it's just not really clear. And I'm going to throw out, he's playing ball with them at the beginning. He's giving them things that they want. Uh, or that he thinks that they want. Uh, He never actually gets around to the part where he asks them to do something. So they think Duranian is their uncle, right? They don't ever really think it. They don't, yeah, but, 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 but like that's the guise that's given to the orphanage. The orphanage yeah, believes yeah. it. The Tony orphanage Tia. believes it. They're like, oh, you're the orphan. You're the, oh, you're the uncle? Okay. Well, that's two less mouths to feed, right? You look just like his <laughs> sister, whose picture I've never seen. That's good enough for me. <laughs> right. So, so, but it's weird that your uncle would take you to the house of a rich man. And say, oh, like, like, but the kids never like say, this is weird, or this is odd, or there's never any sort of moment where they go, well, I mean, I guess Tia says that things aren't right, but it's never connected. They clearly haven't been taught anything about stranger danger, because they just, you know, they don't quite as passively put themselves in the hands of Duranian and Bolt. But they, but with Jason, they do with with um, Uncle Benet, they do. It, it's just like, oh, sure, we can trust anybody. But of course, they have superpowers, so they know that they can, I guess. 
Right, what a terrible message for yeah. young children. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just run up with this old man. <laughs> right. He just offered you ice cream. <laughs> In fairness, you keep going off with men till you find one that's good. <laughs> like like if at first you don't succeed, try, try again until one day you climb into the right car. There you go. Yeah, yeah. A good message. This is terrible. Good message. We're terrible. All right, Jason O'Day. What do we think about Eddie Albert? Immediately introduces himself as one person, crusty and like grumpy and what have you. And within 45 seconds of meeting him, (laughs) we immediately realize none of that is true. He's not he's not happy about filling up that RV for $10. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm with you. I mean, but he didn't have to make change. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe there was a change shortage in 1975, too. I don't know. I don't know either. What do we think about him? He tells us, I'm a mean, selfish, impatient man. And, and we never believe it. And Tia sees right through him. And she immediately like, oh, I know you were married. And you made an oath never to love anybody again. And... You know, we didn't mean to make you sad. And, and so, you know, we all see through him all the way through, no matter how cranky or curmudgeonly or whatever. You know, he's he says, I ain't no bus line. You know, he tells the children they're conniving, undersized pirates. Like, you know, but we know that he really has that heart of gold <laughs> underneath. Yeah. I mean, he's grumpy from the seven dwarfs, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm going to I'm going to make a big show of how much I don't like you. But really, I might be the person who loves you the most in this world. Right. 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 Like, and and he's that's a classic Disney archetype that appears in so much of their work. And and he's he's the latest in the line of that. That being said, they I can't help but feel he's wasted his entire life <laughs> up until this point um, that there's there's a lot of empty years in there where I just don't I don't I don't know how you fill them. He's got this brother who we've never seen and who is introduced as if we're going to see him and then we do not meet. <laughs> but but like he he just seems to be one of those people who's been going through the motions until until uh, Tony and Tia come into his life. So whatever he's got, he's getting in his RV. He's had enough of it, and he's getting in his RV, and he's just taken off. This right. is it, you know. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I'm just not sure where he's going, what he's doing. Like like he just seems to be in the RV. And <laughs> and honestly, if you like cats, dude, if you like cats, you could have gotten your own long before this. Well, maybe it was a discovery. Maybe he's discovering he likes cats. I don't know. I, it's it's hard because he kind of takes over the movie at this point, and and we're seeing. But but uh, yeah, I I couldn't tell you anything about him. So Eddie Albert does this great thing with this character that I think um, is important to me and. I think it's kind of a a real credit to his acting chops. He takes some really awful dialogue and turns it into gold. Like he sells it. Like he's, he's 100% in and sells it. And you can see his arc uh, that he creates, even though there's not much dialogue there to for him to create it with. He really does sort of go from grumpy to uh, to loving, right? And he sells every moment. And um, and I think the strength of his performance really does take away from these kids. And it p- makes me wonder if it's like, oh, wow, we probably should have brought him in earlier <laughs> because it's a better performance than what the kids are delivering. 
but he's never really conflicted. A, so so here's the thing. You could make him the kind of guy who was like a bounty hunter, right? Mm-hmm. He yeah. finds out that these two kids are missing. He finds the two kids or he finds the two kids. Then he discovers the two kids are missing. And he's like, well, maybe I'll just take the two kids back to the person who's offering this rule. You could make it a little more complicated. Basically, his choice is... Am I going to be a good guy in this movie, or am I not going to be in the movie at all? Am I going to just drop them off on the side of the road, and you'll never see me again? But give give us a little more conflict. Maybe he needs that money that's being offered. But yeah, he grows yeah, to love. Yeah, for sure. To, he, he goes from, I don't like kids, to, I would die for you, almost immediately. And we don't, and consequently... While we're seeing a transformation, it's a very quick transformation. It's what if Scrooge only needed one of the three ghosts to come, and like by the time the other two got there, Christmas Pass was, guys, you have the night off. I did it. Mission accomplished. Scrooge is a changed man, right? It it just all happened. His arc happens too fast, and it's partly because he comes halfway through the movie. Let's let Nancy take Uncle Benet. Yeah, Uncle Benet, you know, I mean, he, he only appears for what? I mean, it's not even five minutes. It's maybe two minutes. Um, and and the name itself, I, I, I thought it was interesting that Benet rhymes with O'Day. So the two good guys, you know, have these rhyming names. One hands the kids off to the other. Um, but of course, Benet also suggests that he's benevolent. So we can be we can be secure about, you know, the kids going with him. Um, you know, I, I don't remember, he doesn't have a lot of lines, you know, it's like, thank the blessed stars. We've been looking for you for years. It's just like, um, there's something about him that I just feel like he stepped out of the bridges of Madison County or something. He's got that sensitive poet, that sort of long haired hippie sort of look with the, um, we were talking earlier about the, the tight clothing that really emphasizes his pot belly. And it's just, it's just the oddest thing. Like they just went and found somebody on the street and said, Hey, could you come and play uncle Benet for a minute? We just need we just need a quick, quick take here. And, and it, it, it seems so odd. We just know he, very little about him. And we're supposed to be happy that the children now have found their home and, and they go off with him. And we don't even know where they're going. We've been told that the people live in the mountains, but then they go off in a spaceship. So where are they going? Beyond that, when, when he emerges from the woods, my first thought was Bigfoot. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> when he comes out, he comes out lumbering <laughs> out like one of those pictures, Bigfoot from the woods. Kind I don't like understand. Boggy Creek monster kind yes, of, yeah, kind yes, of vibe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is something definitely not quite. I don't believe this guy's an alien at all. Like, I don't believe that. And it's interesting how the kids are like, it's Uncle Benet. And I'm like, you've (laughs) never really talked about him. You've never really had this moment where you're like, this is it. And it's Uncle Benet. And our last name is Castaway. And that never really gets wrapped up. So is it Uncle Benet Castaway? Is he a (laughs) Castaway too? Yeah, I mean, the it's a strange... I want the, I want them to stay with Jason. Yes. Yes. Right? yes. And the kids, that is the thing I was about to say. Right. And the kids just, it's like, here, you can have Winky. We're, we're leaving. We'll never come back to visit you. Bye-bye. And they just <laughs> run off. It's just like, what? This is how I would rewrite the ending. That Uncle Benet's like, well, I'm going to take you in the spaceship, blah, 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 blah. And the kids say, wait, we don't want to go with you. We want to stay with Jason. And Uncle Benet says to them, Listen, your powers are already beginning to fade. 
You have to go with me. I can train you to keep them and use them. And then the kids say, we'd rather be with Jason than have our powers. And I would sob at the end of this movie. (laughs) Yes. It needs, there's a heart tug missing. We're missing that traditional Disney heart tug. If the kids are leaving, they need to be. And Tia is like Kim Rob. She is the perfect actress for this to give this kind of moment where she looks in his face and says, I can never come back. Or alternatively, you have Jason tell the kids, though it's killing him. You do the Harry and the Henderson sort of thing. And Jason's like, I never wanted you, blah, 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 blah. And he lies and he blusters because he's trying to push the because he thinks the kids will be better off without him. And like he's pushing them. He's like, you can't stay with me and my thing. I don't want you. I never wanted you. I'd be glad to be rid of you. <laughs> and then to, like he, he gets rid of them. We see him break down because it was all an act. And then they show up again and go, did you... Th- forget we can read your mind oh i love it that's great (laughs) you thought you could fool us like all all we heard was how much you love us and so we're staying with you Mm. i'm getting misty now (laughs) see See, like it it is really hard like this movie is like has it has so many great things about it like i love i am sold on the special effects like i think it's amazing and i i mean when when that rv go and when the you know, the, the helicopters flying upside down and the, all the things that I I love about Poppins or, like I said, uh, Herbie the Love Bug, right? They're all in here. It's just that the story isn't, oh, I want so much more from it. I think it, I think there's some missed opportunities for sure. Agreed. Yeah. Shall we get to protagonist problems? Oh, Lordy, yes. <laughs> we probably should. Who do you think the protagonist of this movie is? So I have a kind of threefold answer here, because when I was 12, I was absolutely convinced that it was Tia. And I don't know if that was just because as a 12 year old girl, I most identified with her, but she does seem very central in some ways because she has the star case because she has the most emotionally vulnerable moments. She has, you know, at least a, a hint of a conflict at the beginning of the, the movie. But but watching it as an adult, I don't think she is at all. I think it's, it's Jason. I th- He has more at stake. He changes more. I agree. He changes too quickly. Um, but at the end, he he's transformed and he's the one we're left with. But my third answer to that, just given my own experience with this movie, is that I think in some ways the movie casts us, the child viewer, as sort of a protagonist because there's that line about how um, the world is full of these lost children with star cases and maps and Jason is going to go looking for them. And I think that that's exactly what incited our imaginations and made us think we're some of those children, you know, and the Ouija board said so. Mm, Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so the movie, the change in this movie happened to us because we, it extended our sense of the, of our imaginations of, um, you know, it, it, it extended the capability of our imaginations for another year that we could pretend that we were some of those children. Yeah, it's an invitation to play, right? It's an yeah. invitation to figure out what what if have you ever considered this kind of possibility as a power in your play? Have you ever thought about this? And yeah, it's interesting. Did, interesting. did you have that reaction, Andy, when you were a kid? Yeah, I I never occurred to me that you could talk telepathically. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, can you I remember sitting with my friends and going, can you? All right, what am I thinking now? Okay, no, no, that wasn't it. What am I thinking now? <laughs> right. 
we were we were we were terrible at this. <laughs> but it sure was a lot of fun, right? Yeah. But but I'll throw out this movie passes the protagonist around like a baton. Early on, Tony and Tia share protagonist function, but the second that they get into Jason's trailer, we're following the movie from Jason's point of view and not from them. And that's a problem because, you know, if you don't make that leap with them, uh, and I don't know that I really did, uh, you you might feel unrooted, unmoored with this movie. At a certain point, you're just like, I guess it's just the people in the RV. Um including Winky, you know, you just get, you just get a little removed from it. It's just not, it's not tightly focused on them at that point. Yeah. And I think one of the problems with making Tia and Tony the protagonist of the movie is that they are really powerful. And so the question, I mean, they, they don't really have room to change. The only thing that they can do is to recover what they once knew about themselves, if they ever really fully knew it at that point at all, right? I'm not, it's hard to know, like, 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 can you recover places of childhood amnesia? So that's, um, man, it's like Tia needs to remember her past, right? And Tony needs to remember the strength of his powers, and then also when to use his powers and when not to, which I'm never sure he really uses, learns that completely. Um, But that's not a big, that's not a big shift. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to pop something here. All right. Yeah. So this is one it. of my big problems with certain superhero movies and, and movies in this genre. When the characters are too powerful, you cannot get any dramatic tension from the scenes. By the time that Tony and Tia decide they want to escape the mansion, they have already demonstrated that they can control the minds of adults. They make Aristotle Bolt and Duranian go to bed against their will. Uh, they can make the motorcycle come to life and go. They have so much power. And I understand this is wish fulfillment. But how do you ever feel like they're threatened when they can do everything? And there's an easy answer to this, which fixes the whole movie for me. The more they use the, their powers, the sicker they get. That There needs to be a limitation on this. That if they use their powers too much, they get weak. And Aristotle Bolt wants them to use their powers more than they've ever used it before. And if they do that, they will surely die. And then every time you have a conflict for them, they have to first be like, can we solve the problems without our powers? Because it's making us weaker, it's making us sicker. If we don't get back to which mountain in time, we will die. It's exacerbating the problem. And so every time they use the power, it's like, yes, they succeed, but at a cost. It feels like that odd life of Timothy Green movie, right? Or something where there's, yeah, if this happens, then this happens, right? It There's a puts stake. a ticking clock on the on on their journey, and maybe in the tail end of it, Tony and Tia are wiped. They're dying, and Jason is desperately booking it on the RV, trying to get them there. And all of their powers are gone at that point. But but give us an escalation. Make the power the powers can be cool, and we can have all the fun with them. But it needs. It, there needs to be tension in it, and there needs to be stakes. And this movie does not. I don't really believe that Tony and Tia couldn't just fly to which mountain. 
just that's a question that I had early on. Like, why can't why can't they just zap themselves there or wish themselves there or fly themselves there or whatever? I, I think that the suspense in the movie is largely achieved from us looking, you know, waiting to see what clever way they're next going to stick it to the adults, to the evil people, you know. So there is that suspense, but but it's really illogical in so many ways. Yeah. I, I, at one point when they're at the sheriff's office, I'm like, how'd they even get to the sheriff's office? They should have told the sheriff, use your mind control powers and be like, sheriff, let us go. And sheriff would be like, I guess I'll let you go, Jedi mind trick. But it's so much more fun to terrorize them. Yeah, it's so much more fun to terrorize them with a broom and a coat and a hat. Yes. The other thing, the other possibility with that could be, Larry, it's sort of like if you put something like a kryptonite in there that keeps them from doing this thing? What if there's a limitation that we didn't, that they're learning about, and they all of a sudden learn about this limitation of their powers? It's not working. Why isn't it working? Oh, my gosh, what's happening? And then, you know, we see that there's this thing that, you know, is bigger than they are. So yeah, you have to have something to curtail these, these powers, because it's just too, too tough. Okay, themes. Do we have some themes in this movie? So, I mean, for me, the themes are kind of weak. I, I, it's not redemptive love because no one ever makes a sacrificial act of redemption. It's don't be gre- a greedy capitalist, I guess, is the theme. Don't exploit children is the theme. Uh, I, I, I'm really at a loss here. I think thematically this, this movie breaks down you know we just watched last week 101 dalmatians which similarly has chill has you know puppy children but puppies trapped in a mansion and they have to make a great escape uh and this movie that movie at least thematically has a strong through line about parents wanting doing anything to reunite with their children this movie uncle benny's just sitting on witch mountain he's like yeah they'll eventually get close (laughs) enough I mean, I don't want to have to commute. <laughs> Route yeah. one is scary. A lot of twists and turns on that coastline. I'll just chill till they get here. <laughs> I mean, there's a gesture at this sort of general good versus evil thing, but but yeah, it's pretty pretty general. And but of course, the evil people get their comeuppance, a sort of comedy comeuppance from the powerless of the world, from children, from animals, from old people. I guess I'm, uh, but. He's fine. He still has his million. Aristotle Bolt still has everything he started this movie out with. He just got a little nauseous because his helicopter flew upside down. But right. like, he's fine. Yeah. yeah. Duranian is yeah. fine. That's what I mean by the comedy comeuppance. They have these little comedic moments, but in the long run, they don't really mean anything. I think there's supposed to be a persecution theme. We have that bit where the sheriff is like, I saw two the, these kids cast powers, and for some reason, the entire town immediately believes him, and they're ready to kill children on sight at the word <laughs> word of this guy. So, so we could we could arguably try to cast this as a parallel to some sort of racism, mob violence sort of thing. But I don't really. I, I think the movie goes to great pains to actually not do that. I mean, how white is this movie? There Mary. is not one person. Not one person of color. Uh, there aren't any women in this movie. I mean, other than there's Tia. One there's one woman like and one girl. Director. That's it. And and if you look at a, a, a cast, <laughs> if you look at a list of the cast, there are 25 men, one woman, one girl, all white. It's incredible. It's just the 
I, I think really what's coming, what we're coming away with is the work on developing the theme. If there's a theme for the opening part and there's a theme for the second part, they're not working together. And consequently, I don't really come away with a message about this one. It just so, is. So for me, in the beginning of this movie, and I think one of the reasons why I was drawn to it as a child is that you see these two kids and they go to this place and they just don't belong. They don't fit and they're sort of isolated. Even there, I mean, we think about kids, at least in the 70s, we thought about kids living in orphanages as people who didn't belong anyway, and they're further isolated by the fact that they have these powers. And so I could see this sort of isolation belonging, you know, Jason doesn't really belong, he's sort of isolated. Um, but then the payoff would be great if they stayed with Jason, because then that isolation and belonging, oh, we belong to each other, right? It would have more of a Yes. That. We d- we don't belong with we don't belong with uh, Aristotle and Duranian. Uh, we don't belong. There are places we don't belong. Where do we belong? We belong with each other. Yes, and if the movie ended differently, that they created that sort of found family at the end, and they and they stayed together, we it might all tie together. But because they go with Uncle Benny into the spaceship, it really it's like they don't belong in this world at all. They shouldn't yeah. be here. They shouldn't be here. Okay, pitch time. So given the history of this franchise, uh, what in the world would we do with this material? And I'm <laughs> Larry's already done mine. So I'm going to say I'm just going to give mine straight out is to rewrite the script and to make Jason the protagonist, and the kids the antagonists. Um, now in this book, Jason O'Day is a priest, and I don't think that works so well. But and I definitely add more women more diversity. I combine the Jason O'Day character with Duranian. Uh, in order to raise the stakes for him as he has to leave his job to protect the children and then get them to Witch Mountain, right? Um, because I don't, I think those two characters, I think they work better if it's, if it's just one character. Nice. That's my thought. Of course, I knew your thought having read it. I know, you're amazing <laughs> that way. <laughs> so I also, given how Nancy? dismal... Yeah, given how, how dismal a lot of the sequels were to this, I remember seeing them years ago when my daughter was young. Um, I, I, too, would really like to see a remake of this movie, but I actually would like to see a remake that has the children as the protagonists. And I'd like to see the movie that I thought I was watching when I was 12 with a deeper sense of characters. You know, all the things that you all said, you made such good points about, um, you know, we, we need to know more about the, the story that got them there to the children's home. Um, I think combining characters, um, giving us more of a sense of like the purpose in saving Duranian's life, as you said, Larry. Um, I mean, I want a deeper, more complex sense of characters, but I really want to see these children given justice as protagonists. Okay. My pitch, my pitch. There is this thing this movie does not deliver that it should deliver. Which mountain? I want, I was promised by the title that we, we would escape to a place called Witch Mountain. And we never get to Witch Mountain. I want to be at Witch Mountain. That sounds like a hella cool place to be. Really does. Uh, and really, I, what, what I think I would like to see is clearly the people in this town know about Witch Mountain. To the point where they can immediately be inspired to child murder just at the thought that those kids might be from Witch Mountain. So let's tell that story. 
It's sort of like a Harry Potter kind of story, but it's instead bordering on the muggle world. There is Witch Mountain and the two worlds know about each other. And and Witch Mountain has tried to keep separate from the from the real world for so long, but now when the kids are out there, they're forced out into the real world and it makes them vulnerable. And we have this conflict between like will they be discovered and revealed to the world at large? Um why are they keeping themselves secret? Maybe some of us some of those humans out there can be trusted, but we tell a story of two communities coming together through the rescue of children. And I also want to be inside Witch Mountain. I want to see the aliens doing their alien stuff. I want to go to that location <laughs> I was promised to go to. You don't understand want to see Uncle Benet come out of the woods. <laughs> Uncle Benet comes out in a blue shirt and a pair of jeans. He looks like he's I, working on a car. <laughs> I want I want either a warlock or I want someone from the Galactic Federation coming out of there. I but want not some, Uncle uh, Jesse from the Dukes of Hazard, right? Definitely. <laughs> definitely. That was a wardrobe miss. <laughs> I love it. I love and it. So that's and movie, my pitch. And the movie as it is, is really escaped to Stony Creek. You're right. Because they never, you know, yep. we never really know anything about Witch Mountain. So I re- we read a lot of scripts. I'm sure you you do, Larry, and I read a lot too. And people give me their stuff and their nuggets inside those those first drafts, right? This feels like a first draft that nobody ever said, hey, we should ask some questions about, no, let's do it. Let's just do it. Let's just go. <laughs> it we'll has fix the it. elements. We'll fix it as we go. We'll fix it in post, right? <laughs> it has the right ingredients in it. But the recipe has not measured those ingredients properly and doesn't know what we want it to be, ultimately. The universe is a fine universe to inhabit, but but fundamentals are lacking. That's, that is my verdict. Yep. Right. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for bringing us down this memory lane for us. There were lots of parts that I enjoyed, particularly in the first half of the oh, movie. Oh, 100%. Like I said, I was down for like all of the special effects because I know they're all mechanical. And I'm sitting there going, how was that done? How did that happen? The crayon on the mirror, I will think about for the rest of my life, right? Escape to Witch Mountain was good until they tried to escape to Witch Mountain. And that's where it went off the rails. (laughs) Well, thank you again, Nancy, for for coming and being with us today. Thank you so much. This is fun. All right. So next week, Larry, what are we covering? We are covering A Nightmare Before Christmas. Ooh, the Tim Burton classic. Love it. One of our absolute favorites at this house. We watch The Nightmare Before Christmas every year. Big Jack Skellington fans. Well, awesome fans. If you like what you're hearing, would you do us a favor? And would you share this podcast with another Disney or even a classic movie fan? And could you check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page? We try to put some good stuff up there. Tweet us at, at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner 6. Or you can even drop us a line in our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon.